Hello and welcome to the Don't Break the Oath podcast. Today I have uh, a guest on by the name of Tom Seawood uh, and he runs the Ha Moo Moo Adventures. Uh, there'll be links to that in the description. Where he actually takes people out looking for Bigfoot and himself he's added a few Bigfoot, insight, a Bigfoot sightings so we get into a few of them today. And uh, we could touch a bit on his uh, theories of uh, what what Bigfoots are and where they come from and uh, where they're going, essentially. So, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy that. Uh, sorry for the delay in getting shows out. We had some bandwidth issues. Um, that should be sorted now. Uh, the website's almost up and running. Uh, when it is, there'll be, this, like I say, there'll be links into the show notes. They'll be there. But it'll essentially be Don't Break the Oath podcast dot com um but it won't show up on search engines for a while because there's a bit of a delay uh, from activating your site for it to show up on there for whatever reason so uh yeah anyway so when we the show so um yeah thanks for listening it's obviously because of your heritage and all the rest of it it's uh almost ingrained within your culture the, the, the bigfoot phenomenon if you like um and some aspects of it spiritual, uh, and I'm, I'm, I th- I, does it does it actually lean more towards the spiritual rather than the physical. No, um, leans more towards the physical. Yeah, an actual beast. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, people that jump on with all of their comments about the spiritual side, orbs, alien jumping into alien spaceship, <laughs> yeah. uh, jumping through portholes, mind speaking with humans, yeah. things like that. That's very disrespectful to many First Nations, which are Indian tribes throughout North America, which we refer to as Turtle Island. Mm. That's what we call North America because it looks like a turtle. And everyone within that are the Indian tribes, well over close to over 600 different tribal groups. Mm. Many of them, of course, believe in a spiritual side and a very heavy spiritual side. I'm not one of those groups from one of those groups. But uh, our people and a lot of them on the coast, you know, it's just all about respect. Mm. You have, if you see the animal or hear it or it's giving you signs that it doesn't want you around, show it the respect and move on and don't ever try to harm or hurt it or throw things back at it. Mm. But uh, one of the greatest disrespectful things I find out there is when people come on with these, what we call in North America, the woo-woo or the woo. Yeah. Those are the people that believe in those and, yeah. The, the supernatural magical things like you know you see i probably i probably go along more with that uh aspect of it because like you say you've got the footprints you've got the hair you've got the blood you've got you've got physical evidence which to me leans more to it being well actually it leans definitely to it being a, a physical being uh rather than and i think these other things that people see you know, the UFOs, the lights, whatever. I think they're just coincidental. Um, I don't even think it's that. I call it the mental band-aid. See, when someone gets emotionally and physically hurt, so, for example, someone who gets raped, Mm. whether it be male or female, the mental band-aid kicks in and, you know, you don't hear them crying about it and talking about it on a daily level and trying to force their beliefs and the pain they went through down other people's throats. So that's what I call a mental band-aid, how the creator has made it so that in traumatic situations, your brain starts to take control of the situations to 
alleviate the pain and the emotional stress. So when someone sees or hears or smells a Sasquatch Bigfoot, well, number one, they're usually concrete cowboys. Those are people that live in the concrete cities and what I call urbanization. I'm a bushman. I've mm. lived out bush for decades. So when all of a sudden something happens where they're oyster picking like I was doing with my kids yesterday and just say rocks started raining down upon them and sticks, well, right away they're seeing spaceships and they're seeing orbs and they're mm. seeing shadows that are portholes and all of a sudden the thing was mind speaking me and hitting me with infrasound and I had to leave. <laughs> no, that's they're so afraid that they're pooping in their pants mm. and they're do, urinating in their pants. There's anything to the infrasound aspect of it? No, it's no. you know yes, not at this time. No, because number one, we haven't sat with them like we have with tigers and giraffes and mm-hmm. rhino yeah. and elephants. Uh, yep, yep, so yep. until we do the Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey thing with these creatures, running on speculation like infrasound, that's like believing in Santa Claus is going to come crawling down my chimney and put a bunch of packages beneath my tree yeah that's fair you know. yeah so you know so when was the uh can you remember then like <clears throat> as a child or can you remember the first time you actually was told about the sasquatch oh god i can't go for that far back <laughs> um i lived in a place called alert bay a native indian community half the island which is indian reserve and on the south central side was the hospital and the community graveyard for since European contact. And of course, you know, the Indians had changed their ways and accepted Christianity and the colonial way of life back then. But they also incorporated into that graveyard along with the headstones and the burying their loved ones in the ground. They incorporated the traditional memorial pole and these memorial poles some of them in this graveyard to this day have the Junakwa, the wild woman of the woods, carved into it with, you know, sleepy looking eyes, puckered up lips, big ears, pendulous breasts. Some of the totems had outstretched arms where others were, you know, the arms were beside it. But I remember as a kid walking by there and, you know, being scared because we had heard the stories about Junakwa and how if you didn't behave as a child, she could come and steal you away at night. And with her big hairy arm and grab you and take her to her invisible home in the forest. And that's where she would boil up and eat bad children. So she was our boogeyman and mm. still is to this day. Yeah, that's fair enough. So that was, the, that was the first time you sort of realized this was a possibility. So when was the first time you actually bumped into one of these? In the early 1990s when I was working out in uh, bush territories in my abandoned Indian village, known famously as Mama Lalakula, village of a last potlatch, uh, otherwise to our people, village island or Mimikamlis, the village of the rocks and the islands out front. And when I was out there in my 20s as the native watchman and caretaker of this village site of ours, we had an incident, we just heard and smelled something that had run through the forest behind our trail trailer that we were living in. We brought a trailer, 26-foot caravan trailer out on a landing craft. And, uh, you know, it's like Normandy where those front doors came down and you drive your vehicle off. That's yeah. what we did with the machine to drag our trailer up, build a small 
10 foot by 10 foot addition and that was our home out there for 1989 90 and 91 or at the two years we did it for my tribe and then later on i took over the native cultural tours i was doing in this abandoned native village with fallen totem poles and history big house remains and uh all of a sudden we started hearing things, you know, things out of the ordinary, but it never really showed themselves until I went into this place where the trailer was in the early 90s with my commercial fish boat, which was, you know, about 60, almost 60 feet long. And three, four of us on board, my girlfriend, my two crew men, one of them being Indian. And we're all bushers. We'd all grown up in the bush. And lo and behold, two of them came out. Well, we knew there was two because we put spotlight on and caught them and the spotlight from the fish boat and just like i guess you guys are in england mm-hmm. yeah. just like when you go down to the docks and everything and you see the work boats with the big huge spotlight yeah. that's kind of light we had on there and, you know there was two of them one dropped to its knees and put its hand up in front of arm up in front of its face mm-hmm. which is indicative to our native dances and the potlatches mm-hmm. and our ceremonial big houses that we've been brought up with and still do and the female one dropped on her knees in a fetal position with her head, forehead pressed up against the ground, but her buttocks facing us with the spotlight 160 yards away. And it was, you know, 20 minutes of them in the light. We couldn't get them to move. Mm-hmm. And then we turned the light off because I didn't want to draw my batteries down. So she thought and, she was hidden. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that was a pageant. And you hear all the stories about them, you know, people thinking they saw a rock or what we call a stump, which is a tree that's mm-hmm. had a top part knocked off and uh the uh people think of you know think they saw a rock or a stump there or a log and then all of a sudden where they're trying to convince people and the log's no longer there or the rock mm. and you know it shows one of their hiding characteristics so when so there was a female and a male and when the the male put his arm across his face do you think that was to protect his eyes from so I imagine the the spotlight is pretty powerful. Was do you think he was protecting his his night vision? Would you say? No. Um, when you look in, when you go to the ceremonial potlatches, the potlatch ceremonies and our ceremonial big houses, which some people would call a longhouse, there are cathedrals, our chapels, our congress, our parliament, and our theaters. And this is where we hold these great celebrations where families share their treasures, their masks, which are talking about legends and stories, the songs, which are the legend and story. It's a great celebration. We won't get into it in depth right now, but people can contact me on my groups or email later or phone me. But anyway, when you watch these dances take place that go back to the dawn of our creation for our families, some of them, and you see the bukwus, which is uh, a spiritual creature that's out in the forest that commands the ghost world in that spiritual level. It's a small, hairy, hair-covered, bipedal creature. And uh, when you see it, it's when it comes out on the beaches at low tide to harvest its favorite food called a cockle type of shellfish, like a clam. And it always has its arm in front of its face as it's moving about and it's crouched down low. It's shy of the humans. And that's why it has its arm in front of its face for some reason. I guess it's maybe hiding itself or shy. But, you know, it's that's what we've seen on dance floors for thousands of years. And we still do to this day because it's showing you what an ancestor saw out in mm. the wilds. And that, that dates back 
prior before we had flashlights and that so obviously it was doing this way before we had lights so it wasn't in you know it wasn't doing it to protect its eyes then in that way so it was like you say probably hiding or I don't know I think it's it's, you know it's like a moose you know you can out in the Canada forest here you can see a moose or an elk and they'll put their head behind a small little shrub you know that's maybe three meters high and uh a meter and a half wide and he can't see you so he thinks he's hidden but his entire body is sticking out from behind the shrub it's actually pretty comical but it's you know it's the mentality of something that doesn't have a well-defined frontal lobe like an ungulate mm. but you know maybe that's why they're doing it we don't know yet so you so because you hear all these stories about the sasquatch being uh intelligent and all the rest of it so you you're you're almost saying that Maybe it's not as bright as what people think. No, because when you hear the stories of the Junakwa, the wild woman in, mm-hmm. of the woods, which is also a male counterpart, those are the giant ones. Those are the Sasquatch, Bigfoot, what my people called Junakwa. Well, and the one that's carved on all the poles and everything. Well, you talk about seeing and you hear the legends and stories and quite a few of the families talk about it. You know, not being too smart. You can fool it. You can trick it. There's a very famous legend. If uh, people want more information on me, they can go to Sasquatch Island. That's my group on Facebook and ask to join. But if you scroll through and read, I've shared some of these legends and stories and a lot of our traditional art from our traditional artists. And uh, one of them, you'll see a picture of a Junakwa with a sack on her back and children in the sack, and another child falling out with a little flint knife. And uh, that's a story about Klindach, this one boy who saved all the children from a village a long time ago. And when the kids were falling out of the sack, Junakwa, the wild woman in the woods, didn't realize. So a lot of the native legends and stories, which I have to take as gospel truth, because that's our way and our culture, well, they speak of it not being too bright. So I have to reflect upon that and say, yeah, the Sasquatch Bigfoot isn't too bright on certain capacities. Mm-hmm. On other ones, it's a genius, like hiding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's, I mean, you expect it to be, you know, um, yeah, where it lives, you'd expect it to have that capacity to uh, be able to hide pretty well. I mean, a lot of animals can hide reasonably well in the woods, can't they? So uh, you wouldn't. You know, you wouldn't see that as a massive sign of intelligence. But what um, what about the aggressive nature of the uh, the Sasquatch? Because there's a lot of uh, uh, I don't know if it's well-meaning or or well, say well-meaning TV programs, and you know what I'm talking about, not finding Bigfoot. Sorry, finding Bigfoot, um, and all these where they they make out these things are so friendly. Uh, if you just get some popcorn it's going to come and you know try and eat some but we, we very rarely get the aggressive stories on there so where up you know where you are where does the balance lie is it is it more peaceful or is it more aggressive or is it is it a 50 50 split um bush law bush code everything will eat you mm-hmm. even your pets your cat woman and you have a heart attack or an aneurysm and you hit the floor DOA with your chin and you got a hundred kitty cats that you've been feeding in your house. Well, they don't know how to use a doorknob. 
pretty soon the people that come and check on you and find your bones realize that the cats are all sitting there burping away because they just ate you. Everything in the bush will eat you, humans included. That's why we have so many stories about cannibalism. Even your ancestors are doing it at your castles when there was no food or the potato virus came sweeping mm-hmm. through. Cannibalism's cannibalism. That's called bush code. Everything eats one another. Now, bush code also is we don't want to fight. Because we physically fight, we might injure ourselves, which in turn will kill us because we not might be able to migrate or harvest or live properly in the bush. It's a harsh area. So we bluff charge. We, you know, do all kinds of body gestures, throw things, shake foliage, you name it. You know, you look at the primate characteristics, which you attribute to Sasquatch Bigfoot. They're giving you all those warnings to stop, turn around, get out of here. I don't want to fight with you. Mm. Well, we always hear about, people going missing in North America in the forest. And, you know, it's 72 hours later, the search and rescue mission is called off, and now it becomes a recovery mission, meaning they're looking for remains or clothing or something. And then after about a week, it's forgotten about. We never hear about it again. Mm. Well, sure, a lot of those people died in natural causes, natural animal attacks, you know, wolves, bears, cougars. And then, of course, you have the small percentage of unknowns. And those are the ones that may have seen a tree being shook, may have had a rotten tree pushed down towards them. Maybe they heard wood against wood. Bang, 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 bang. And the us First Nations are taught when you hear those things or see those things, you stop, turn around and go back where you came from. It's them telling you, don't come any further. Me and my family up here and I don't want you here. Well, we always ask when we're kids, when you're teaching that or been taught that, well, what happens if you keep going? Well, you hear about those white people that go missing in the forest every year. Well, maybe they didn't listen to the warnings and they kept going. Mm. So, yeah, everything out in that forest will take you on. Everything out there will consume you and poop you out. And that's just bush code. And that's one thing that I'm trying to educate people on. A lot of people in urbanized setting, they don't understand that no more. They lost that base instinct and upbringing of, as a human out in the wilds. And they come out here into our traditional territories as hikers and tourists, and they come skipping case sirrah sirrah, and they don't have bear spray, bear bangers, a knife on their side over four and a half inches of blade because when push comes to shove and you have some big animal on top of you trying to rip you apart, well, you better have a four and a half inch blade or better on your right hip and you'd be shoving that left arm of yours into its mouth and you'd be stabbing that thing as best you can in its, in its diaphragm, trying to bleed it out or kill it because you're fighting for your life. Mm-hmm. One of you is going to be dead. Which one do you want it to be, you or the critter? Indeed, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so yes, uh, I see what you're saying. So maybe <clears throat> the aggression side of things. And again, like you say about the people going missing, Obviously, we never get their side of the story, so we can only, you know, surmise as to what happened. So, <coughs> and in the vicinity of these creatures, and like you say, if these things are hungry, then they could pick people off. And there's plenty of uh, stories going way back when that, that actually tell of, um, you know, tribes being attacked of, you know, by these creatures and actually having to gang up against them. Um, uh, you know, there's loads of stories. I mean, we talk about the the red air giants and and all these things, and obviously that's probably referring to some sort of Bigfoot. So, oh, definitely, yeah. So, 
when when was your most recent sighting? That was in 2006. Um, I had a I have a kayak sea kayak camp for sea kayakers that is five cabins that are made out of western red cedar that look indicative of our traditional style big house or long house. And we used to paint native designs across the front. And that's what these cabins look like. They, it looks like an ancient Indian village on the coast from hundreds of years ago to thousands of years ago with native orca designs. And the orcas swim right back and forth in front of our camp daily two or three times. So when I built this camp, the big, the beach, you know, no one had ever had a campsite there. It's, you know, I don't think any human has actually ever lived there. Might feel my ancestors might have stopped there because it's little pocket sheltered bay. And uh, the beach was filled with driftwood. And out here, you got to remember that back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the driftwood from the logging industry were trees up to six, seven feet in diameter mm. with big root balls on the ends of them. Well, this is the type of driftwood that's in my little bay, plus other wood, which is up to anywhere from a foot to a two, two or three feet in diameter. So I needed to remove that with a chainsaw, power saw, so I can get my kayaks in. So I burned up two tanks of gas, cutting all this wood up, and I shut my motor. My motor ran out of gas, so I put it down. I grabbed the soda pop, opened the can, took a big drink, sat down in a chair, and then all of a sudden, this two trees at the edge of my camp behind my cookhouse started shaking, and I told my dog to go check on it, which is a bush dog about seven years old Hmm. or six years old. And when he ran up there, he just looked behind this tree and just sprung off this rock bluff of 20 feet in height and landed on the ground. And he was, you know, his golden lab, Labrador retriever cross. And he was just a blonde streak going by me, heading for the dinghy. He wanted out of there. (laughs) He didn't want no part of what was behind that tree and which kind of spooked me. And then I'm telling my crew to get my gun, and they're looking through the cabins and everything. And my sister, I'm like, uh, I look to my right, and I can see the cedar trees, and there was a creature standing there looking at me, and it grimaced. Like, it just, the whole face just went into wrinkles and muscle and tendon, and it grimaced at me with these huge whitish teeth. And I told my sister, get to the dinghy. And I'm like, hey, guys, where's my gun? And all of a sudden I hear, oh, you left it in the boat. My boat was anchored out in the bay, and I'm just like, okay, you guys, get in the dinghy. We're getting out of here. Get me a machete. Get me an axe. I'm trying to be calm. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there going, "Uh uh-oh, these big fellas don't want us in here. And we got into the dinghies and got made our way out to my 12-passenger aluminum tour boat that was anchored at that time. And we got on board. My dog jumped on board that boat before we were even two meters away from it. And he ran to his forward part of the cabin the cuddy cabin and he was just cowering in there shaking and shivering looking at me with his look of get me the hell out of your boss when i went in there to start the motors and i grabbed my 338 seiko i went on deck and i was you know because these things throw things mm-hmm. i know that this these things are pissed off they're shaking trees they pushed the a big boulder down into our camp and I'm getting my crew to untie the anchor line and the side lines that were holding us in that bay with the bow pointing towards the weather, the waves, because it was blowing that evening. And, you know, I'm just doing my captain's job, and I'm on deck, and you can hear them screaming. They just erupted, two of them screaming. And so, then we so got the hell out of there. <laughs> well, I don't blame you for that. So, did I mean, 
presumably this was quite close to you. How how far distance are we talking about? I was twenty. What do we measure it to? Well, that was twenty to twenty feet. The bluff. Just to get my numbers right here, because it's quite some time ago, and I am getting old, fifty-two. <laughs> um, it was sixty-five feet, roughly, from where I was standing when I looked at that one that grimaced at me. Mm, and when sorry. we went in there a few days later and saw the impressions in the mossy duff of the forest floor with the, where we were standing, we guesstimated it to be seven foot four, the height of it. Mm. So it was a pretty big creature. Yeah, that's decent. What did its face look like? Looked like a mountain gorilla with a nose. Mm, like a nose like ours. Nose like ours, yep. Yeah. And so, uh, that's got to be some weird. Only way it. I can describe it. <laughs> what color was its face and fair? That one was kind of brownish, dark brownish, tan. Mm. And uh, what do you call it? It was pretty dark on the sides. It had didn't have much hair because it was summertime and everything loses its hair in the summertime. And. Uh, it was brown, real dark brown hair, very long on its shoulders mm. and neck, just like the one I saw in the spotlight that time, because that night, that one came out a little bit closer, about an hour and a half after we shut the spotlight off, and we lit it up again, and you could see the hair, how long it was. Pretty long, you know, but 10-inch long hair on its shoulders. But brown. Brown. Um, I mean, they do vary in colors quite, quite drastically from uh, place to place, but mind you, saying that, you know, apes do. You know, you've got the orangutan, uh, which is, you know, basically albany colour. Then you've got the, the gorillas and you've got, uh, you know, gibbons and all the rest of that, you? So, I mean, you, you, that's not surprising, I suppose, that, you know, the, the varying colour like they do. Um, they call them black bears. And on British Columbia's coast, we have the Cromody bear, the spirit bear, which is white, of course, and not an albino. We do have the odd albino bear, black bear. We have a color variation in coastal British Columbia, especially off the eastern shore of Vancouver Island here on the islands and the inlets on the mainland. We have the most diverse color spectrum of black bears that I know of. And I've been a hunting guide for decades and a hunter mm. for all my life. There's blondes, chocolates, cinnamons, patch-colored bears, and up north where the Cromody bear is, there's ones that are white, and then there's other ones that are almost panda shaped colors not as uniform as a panda mind you but they are white and black and then you got the grizzly bears that come in everything from dark black to dark chocolate right to blondes and mixtures so a lot of people they automatically wouldn't you know because they're urbanites you know mm. they're no I, I am i'm fully there because i mean when you say yeah. black bear, i just think black bear you know what i mean i don't yeah. even, i wouldn't even you know if i saw a brown bear i wouldn't expect that to be a black oh, yeah. bear you know <laughs> But, you know, that's me. I'm living in the, like I say, living in the city. Well, not the city, but it's a town. But. So, um, yeah. see, my theory on the Sasquatch, because, you know, people are, are uh, actively seeking them out to video them um, and all the rest of it. Maybe even capture one, kill one if possible. Um, and, and I'm not against that. I think... Um, Get on with your theory. I want to hear it. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm just saying. So, my my theory on it all is like, um, I think the waterways is the way to find these creatures. I think you know, a creature of that size, obviously, it's getting its food from various different sources, same as the bear. 
But I, I think the waterways is the way... If you really want to find these creatures, I would head for the waterways. Um, trail cams and all the rest of it in the woods. I mean, it's needle in a haystack. But surely these creatures, at some point, have to come to the waterways to get liquids. So that would be my place to go. What, what do you think of that? I was going to say in the beginning, after you finished, I thought, you know, when he's done, I'm going to have to say, no, you can't come up with no theory. You're a concrete, <laughs> concrete or urbanite. You got no reason to everything speculation based on no proof in the pudding you've never walked the walk out here nope. but now i wasn't i'm not going to say that out of respect i'm going to say you got some well-defined frontal lobes you're a thinker i can mm. tell that you're doing your research and putting all of the pieces together and connecting the dots i'm, I'm proud of you for that you're absolutely right but you got to remember we're on a rainforest here in coastal british columbia vancouver island so there's no need to go to water for water. Water is going to find you, trust me. Like, mm. it's the last two weeks, it's just been raining. Us Indians out here, we, we're nice and dark brown. We don't suntan. We rust. That's how much rain we get on the coast. <laughs> they don't call it a rainforest for nothing and trees that are three meters in diameter at the butt for no reason. There's a lot of water coming down. But, yes, the waterways are key. Number one, mm. it's the highest concentration of protein on Earth ever mm. recorded by a scientist. Coastal British Columbia in an area of high current at low tide when the beach is exposed with sediments and fine gravels and sands. A shellfish beach. Mm. And uh, then, of course, you got uh, everything else on that beach. And instead of getting into everything, you know, I could list out about 30 different high concentration protein sources that are on a seasonal level and year round level that Sasquatches and humans have been harvesting since the dawn of creation. Uh, actually can't say that because the, they didn't start the shellfish on the coast of British Columbia didn't start to proliferate about till about 6,400 years ago, as did cedar trees based on the colon um, accumulations in archaeological digs and sediment samples but that's a whole different path that we won't touch on right now other than for the last 6,000 years there's been a lot of food out here on the beaches okay. and yeah you know I look at all these shows like BFRO and these uh, Bigfoot hunters and all that and I just roll my eyes and shake my head I'm like look at all these white people no offense to you listeners out there but when the first white people came to the shores of Turtle Island what did they do they hired an Indian guide, yeah. and the Indian guide brought them up the rivers, Mississippi and so forth, the St. Lawrence Seaway. And then the Indians on land brought them through the mountain passes, across the plains, across the mountains. And all of a sudden, people like uh, Alexander Mackenzie in Canada and Lewis and Clark in the United States had found their way across North America to the shores of the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. Well, without an Indian guide, they'd still be out there roaming around. Actually, they'd be out there as a pile of bones by now or eat by something. But what I'm saying is these people that are in forest settings, it's a needle in a haystack. Absolutely. You're never going to find a needle in 10 hectares of hay. But if you take a needle and stick it on a log on two kilometers of beach and a human has a lifetime to look for it, there's a great possibility they're going to find that needle sticking in a log sitting out on the open beach. Absolutely. And that's the Sasquatch Bigfoot. And that's why I have Sasquatch Island, the Facebook group. That's why I have HamumuAdventures.com, my eco-cultural tourism company, where, yes, we do Sasquatch Bigfoot expeditions out into the rainforest and the coast. And there's a reason why I don't go inland. 
It's a complete waste of time. You're chasing a needle in a haystack. Come out of the hayfield and come out onto the open beaches at low tide when the buffet table's set. Set up. And at nighttime, if it's a low tide, set up with your therms and your night vision and your parabolic listening devices as we do. And you have a very good chance of coming up spades on your dice roll and seeing those creatures and if not seeing them, hearing them. And if not seeing or hearing them, seeing the evidence of their passing, their harvesting. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Get out on the beaches. Yeah. And it's it's pretty open as well, which is an obviously an advantage to uh, you know, when you're using the thermal and stuff like that. So um, what what sort of uh, height range are we talking about when we're talking about the... You know where you are for the Sasquatch. What what sort? What do they range to and from? Oh, because it's a do... seasonal migration during the winter time. They're in on the shores because they're harvesting shellfish. Hmm. Winter time, there's no photoplankton or protozoans that are in the water table in high abundance because there's less sun and it's colder. So the shellfish don't have all of this green stuff inside their bellies, mm. which, as we know, in months without R, May, June, July, August, because of all the sun and all the photoplankton and protozoans, the goniolix with the flagellin accumulates in the shellfish, which is red type. And humans eat it, they get deathly sick, mm. or they die. Well, Sasquatch Bigfoot being very closely related to the human on speculation... And it might be a great ape. But anyway, they're not found on the beaches during the summertime. So what they've done is they've left this time of the year. They've out their harvesting areas with shellfish, which are still good, and herring that are coming in to spawn. I don't know about the British Isles, but here in British Columbia and Southeast Alaska, when the herring spawn, you can walk out with your rubber boots on and with a five-gallon bucket start picking up herring one by one, fill your bucket within an hour or half an hour. So they're after those herring spawns and Vancouver Island only being 60 miles wide. And you got to remember there's inlets and bays coming in. So in some zones, that distance is a lot narrower up to 20 miles from saltwater to saltwater, east and west. Well, those Sasquatchers are just migrating east to west on Vancouver Island. They're on the west side right now, harvesting herring and shellfish. And then after the herring run is done here in another couple of weeks, they're going to move, some of them are going to move by swimming from Vancouver Island to island to island to island, and they're going to migrate to the head of the mainland inlets, which are glacier fed, meaning meltwater from glaciers, mm. where the ooligan, the candlefish, the oilfish spawns from the salt water. They go into the freshwater like a salmon and spawn, and the rivers will turn black. Mm. Some of the Sasquatch clans will be up there, and then when that's over in Bay, a lot of them will be moving out to the islands for the seaweeds and low wa- low waters exposing gooey ducks and horse clams and big huge chitons and then all of a sudden june comes along and now our fruits and berries our leaves come out no longer buds and now they're starting to go to a vegetarian style diet and then as the snows are receding in mid-june they're following the snows up to the alpine because it's exposing animals that died during the winter. It's exposing nests with uh, squirrels and other um, rodents. And then once the snows are gone in the alpines, it grows so 
quick, all of the fruits and the berries and the tubers and the flowers. Mm -hmm. And also there's no tourists up there in mass. And through July, August, when the salmon start to show up in August, they come off the hills and they're in the upper reaches where the waters are shallow and the rivers and streams and creeks. And they're harvesting salmon that you can walk across their backs across these rivers. They're so mm -hmm. thick. Yeah, no, and then come end of September, October, winter time's coming. Hit the shellfish beaches again. That's when we get all the vocalization because the migration, the clans are converging together into the Broughton Archipelago, one of the areas, and a few others I know of. The clans are converging, and now it's time to say, hey, what did you do all spring, summer, and fall? Oh, I went here. I went there. And that's when we get all those vocalizations, which mm. in turn these are out on the beaches. And that's when I really like doing my Sasquatch expeditions with uh, my guests and clients because, you know, hopefully we're going to come up spades and get some good concrete evidence of their existence. Well, at least, you, at least you're narrowing down your search, aren't you, by knowing where they'll be at any given time. You know, that's got to help. But I guess that's the same as the, uh, the way the bears move. Is it the same sort of... Yeah, follow the same sort of migrate paths as the bear. Similar, yes. Yeah. And also for a grizzly bear, same comparable calorie count per day. When you're looking at 5,500 to 6,500 calories per day for an omnivore of that size, whether it be grizzly bear or Sasquatch Bigfoot, you know, you're going to have to have those high concentration protein sources. Mm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But it was like you say, it's in abundance, isn't it? So uh, that's, that shouldn't be a problem. So what about the because uh, you get the Bigfoot and all this that you get stories of the little people as well um, well I don't refer to them as the little people the, as a Kwakwakiwak we have stories of Bukwis the small awesome. bipedal hair covered creature from the spiritual realm mm. that's it I can't exp you know a spiritual realm what is that I don't mm. know I've been there yet I haven't died and we do know in our stories that if you drown, your spirit goes to the spiritual realm where the bequest controls it. That's where drowned spirits go. So hopefully I'll never drown because I don't want to go there. You know, I want to put everlasting potlatch where I'm going to be fishing constantly and enjoying celebrations for eternity. You know, I don't want to go with this lonely little skeletal moving like a bird in fast motions and so lonely he's got to leave ghost food out for humans that get lost in the forest from time to time and that food is ghost food so you mm. see a piece of bark laid out when you're lost in the forest and you've been sleeping and you get up you're hungry you're cold you're mm. terrified and there's a beautiful platter of smoked salmon and smoked herring and herring eggs and salmon berries and other delectables from our world here on the coast and you start devouring it and all of a sudden you realize that that beautiful food is now turned in your mouth and fingers yeah. to worms and snakes yeah. and yeah. slugs and maggots and when you spit it out it's too late you've consumed the ghost food and now the bukwis owns you yep. and no matter how hard you try to leave the forest realm the you spiritual go. realm of bukwis you're captured forever so, so you know you got to be. Careful we have uh, we have exactly the same uh, myth, if you like, here. Um, is exactly as what you described, but it, it's more centered around what we call fairies or um, uh, gnomes. Um, you're probably familiar with this, but they do the same thing. Oh yeah, you got to remember I'm from British Columbia, British yeah, yeah. Columbia with yeah, Victoria. Well, they, yeah, so there you go. So. <laughs> 
they they lead people off um, by giving them food and all the rest of it. But they turn the food, to, you know, it looks nice when you look at it because they use what they call glamour to make this um, more glamorous. So it so it looks to you like you know all these vegetables and meat and all the rest of it. When you start eating it, then like you say, it turns to to bark and maggots and all the rest of it. And then once you've ate, then you belong to them. So it's the same wow. same huh. story. Uh, and that's like you know from Celts and the Scandinavians and all the rest of it. So it's funny how that mirrors in different cultures. But um, as for the little people uh, being seen. Um, we're not talking about like a baby Sasquatch being seen. This is a to- This is something totally separate from the Bigfoot. Would you say? Yes, you can. You, as a quackwalk, you walk. You hear the different creatures by the legend, the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they both have a whole different way of looking, whole different way of movement and acting. And then, of course, when you go to the potlatch, which is our computer bank, our tower, it's mm. expelling data. And you're watching a family in a potlatch expel their data that goes back to the dawn of our creation sometimes. And they bring out their bakwas dancer. You're just like, wow, that's what they're talking about. And, they, you know, you learn. Mm. And then all of a sudden you see that family's version of the Junahua, the bigger one. And so you know that there's two different creatures out there. But you got to remember, I'm pretty well educated at a British-style colonial-based boarding school and called Shawnee and Lake Boys Private School. All the masters are from England. That Mr. Seward, I'm gonna gate you, Mr. Seward, I'm gonna cane you. You know, I was always bending over, getting my arse whooped, and having to, Mr. Seward, you will learn your Latin. And so, being educated. You know, my frontal lobes had a little bit of work out in my grade eight and nine years, especially. So I'm able to look at things instead of accepting it. I want to understand it. And so when you bring in the sciences in the North American Turtle Island, Island Sasquatch, Bigfoot sightings and plaster casts, and the, you speak with the Dr. Meldrums and the Dr. John Bindernagel, who's a very dear friend of mine, living 30 miles up the highway on Vancouver Island for me, and I've known for decades. When you compile everything and you overlay everything, especially me being a Kwakwakiwak bushman who knows the bush and knows my stories based on my tribe, hmm. I'm able to look at it in a whole different context where most people are expert in one little field. Me, I'm like inside the middle of a soccer ball floating around and I'm looking at the Sasquatch Bigfoot equation in a 360-degree spherical context. So I'm able to overlay that data and say, wow. And when I look at the Bukwus, my opinion only is I feel that it's possibly going to be on the branch of Homo florensis. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when we look at the Chonokwa, the Sasquatch Bigfoot, I think it's going to be on the branch of Giganopithecus blackie. And then how did they get here? Well, it, you know, you look at Google, like everyone goes onto this Bering Land Bridge and all that. And I'm like, come on, people, white man's magic, the Internet, the most powerful tool invented by humans to date. Go to Google Earth, look at the northern hemisphere, the Pacific Northwest, and think about ice fields during the Ice Age a mile thick. Well, us Indians out here, we have wide shoulders and short legs. We're built for paddling canoes. We're not built for walking across continents, let alone 
slippery ones called glaciers. Mm, oh, so we yeah. paddled our canoes from the yeah. east and Every, from yeah. everywhere. I think and there was a Sasquatch lot, a lot more. I, I agree with you. I think there was a lot more um, seafaring travel um, back in our hidden history, if you like, than what what we're led to believe. And like you say about the. Uh, that, you know the land bridge. The land bridge. This is it. This is how I think comes land bridge. Now, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot more, a lot more seafaring races than we'll, we've been let on to know about. So, you could be See, you look, What's really, what I find intriguing is we don't have very many reports of a Neanderthal type creature in North America. Very mm. few, if any. But in Eastern Europe and through Asia, we have all these reports of a, basically a Neanderthal still out there with clubs and primitive weapons and tied clothing and the Neanderthal type of face. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you look at Asia, and we know there was Gigantopithecus blackie and Homo florensis and orangutans, and we look at the Google Earth, and if you imagine a ice field a mile thick in the northern hemisphere, and you look at the old riverbeds that go from the Pacific Northwest to British Columbia and Southeast Alaska, far out, thousand miles out into the Pacific Ocean, those are the original uh, beaches, the original Mauser rivers are 600 to 1,000 miles off the continental shelf. So when you look at that, I think you know, we always talk about the last ice age and the, what do you call it, the short-faced bear being extinct now and the mammoth and so forth. Yeah. We have to be in that soccer ball and look at it a little further. We know that we're either going into or coming out of an ice age. So based upon that hypothesis, it's conceivable to say that the second before, the third before, the fifth before ice age was a lot more extreme. That's why North America has the Great Plains. Those things were big sanding blocks that scoured down the landscape and, you know, made the flatlands right, go right down into Kansas and beyond. And when you look at those dry riverbeds on Google Earth that are out in the ocean right now, well, you can imagine that when the migration routes took place, yeah, there was a land bridge from North America to Asia. And that's why we have Homo thalensis and um, Gigantopithecus blackie. Mm-hmm. But when you look at Greenland, Iceland, and Scandinavia, the water's, I think, a little too deep to have had an ice bridge or a land bridge. And that's why we don't have Neanderthal-style Bigfoot Sasquatch in North America. It's one of my theories and uh, when I get time hopefully I'll write it down when I'm because I'm producing a book right now on mm. everything no, so. you should. Yeah, absolutely it'd be interesting read so um so we touched on a couple of your uh, Bigfoot sightings was there any was there any more oh I've any heard of, you know I remember lying and being out in bush and trying to you know if I'm still I fight myself to go to sleep before dark if I'm out hunting or harvesting or whatever out in bush and the reason why is, you know, I'm not nocturnal. Um, why should I be up at night? And besides that, I don't want to hear them howling and whooping from island to island or poking about around the perimeters of my camp. So bush ways is, you know, get yourself sleeping before dark comes and wake up when the sun comes up. And the night is for them. And that's why they're nocturnal. 
And uh, that's why they come out onto the beaches at nighttime low tides, mind you. Sometimes we have to interact. Humans have to go out on those beaches at night too. And that won't, that doesn't go well, does it? Well, that's why they're nocturnal, because yeah. us humans used to beat them up and kill them with our mass numbers and our use of tools and weapons, bows and arrows and spears and use of fire. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Sasquatch, Bigfoot, had no other choice to survive. They had to improvise and adapt. They had to evolve to a nocturnal-based creature. And that's why when you look at the Chunachua, it has sleepy eyes. When you see it dance, it's yawning and rubbing its eyes because it just woke up. And what's the ancestor telling you? Oh, I was out doing my business during the daytime and I spooked or came across a sleeping Sasquatch. Why was this, the Junachua sleeping during the daytime? Because it's nocturnal. Why is it nocturnal? doesn't have to compete with humans. Because the Kwakwakiwak law up until, until colonialization was... You go into my berry patch, my hunting ground, or my shellfish beach, or my fishing grounds without my family's permission. The chief had the right to have his people kill your people that stole from their refrigerator, their cupboard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's Bush rules. You don't even think about trampling in someone else's food locker without permission. And if you do, you better leave a note. I, I used your cabin for two nights out hunting. And Mr. Trapper, I ate three cans of beans. Here's $45, and I cut more firewood and and replaced the kindling for you. Thank you very much for the use of your cabin. Bush rules. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's just logical in case somebody else needs that cabin as well. And for, you know, in an emergency, you just need to make sure you leave it as you find it, don't you? So, um, you know, that just keeps you in good stead anyway. Is there anywhere in particular where people just don't go because of these creatures? Oh, there's a couple of places like that, but I can't divulge where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a couple of shellfish beaches that, you know, some of the us bushers, locals out in the region, we talked, have talked about for years and the knowledge has been passed on. I know, uh, some of the boys due to financial reasons and a collapse of a commercial salmon and herring season about, uh, 15, 20 years ago. They had no other recourse. They went into one of the bays they knew they shouldn't have, and oh, they had all kinds of experiences taking taking place there while they're digging clams at night. So yeah, we do have areas that you know we respect them. And the bottom line is, coastal British Columbia, Canada as a whole, it's a bloody big chunk of dirt out there, <laughs> and there's not very many humans for thousands of square miles. So yeah, no, it's you know. It's, yeah, we have some areas that we don't go to, but in the vast scheme of things, is there's just no people out there to be saying anything different, you know, telling us what's going on. So yeah, and that's the same in Alaska as well. I mean, there's that many, well, that few people there. I mean, there could be anything roaming around, and we just don't know about it, you know. <laughs> you know, Alaska, everyone talks about it because it's good marketing from the Alaska State Tourism Commission. But the bottom line <laughs> is, you know, Canada. British Columbia, Northern Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, um, Northwest Territories, Iqaluit, uh, Yukon. I lived up in the Northwest ter- Territories up until last August for a year. I remember taking my snowmobile and filling it up with gasoline and topping the oil up and putting spare gas on the back and leaving at 4.30 in the morning and driving as far as I could in one compass course. 
and going over hill over dale because you know the trees are sparse up there it's semi tundra and all of a sudden you hear the motor starting to calf out it's running out of gas so i'd stop before it did run out and top it up right away and get off and have a smoke and look at the beautiful surroundings and then turn around and go back to the place I was living called Aurora Village, which had 21 teepees in my cabin for Aurora viewing for the international tourists, uh, Northern Lights viewing. And I remember thinking, wow, that's a big chunk of nothing. Tom, <laughs> if something happens out there, you'd be bloody glad you left a note on your door that says, uh, if I'm not at work at 930, this is the direction I went, yada, 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 come find me. So, you know, it's bush rules. You know, that bush is going to, something's going to poop you out if you don't do things that are crispy like that. And that's one of the reasons why I don't get into the spiritual woo-woo part of the Sasquatch Bigfoot equation. Because number one, those just from scared people. Number two, it's from concrete urban rights that don't know jack bugger all about the bush. And number three, you got to keep your shit tight out there. You got to stay crispy. If you're not crispy and focused, something goes wrong, you're dead. You're pooped out. So that's one of the main reasons why I keep myself wound up pretty crispy out there in the bush oh, yeah. and I don't mean, get into this woo-woo spiritual stuff. You get people just going on hikes and, and, and twisting an ankle, and that's enough to that's enough to, to, to wipe them out right there. Yeah. So this whole enigma of the Sasquatch, then, do you think it's going to be solved soon rather than later? I told if, Dr. John Bindernagel... Well, five, six years ago, that it'll be solved by the end of 2015 because of the invention of the phone on the cell phone, and everyone has a cell phone. So that didn't come. Well, actually, I guess you could say it did with the Freeman footage and some others that are coming in. But I think we're very close. We're very close, close to getting that. Uh, it's never be conclusive on video or still picture. But unless you do like, uh, um, you know, a Diane Fossey, Jane Goodall thing, then it becomes conclusive when you're showing that epidermal ridges and the features and the muscle structure by them grimacing and winking and opening their mouths and shoving a cell phone video into their mouth so you can see whether or not they have canines and what's the structure of the molars. Is it a canine? If it does have a canine structure, then with the molar structure, does that put that into the grade eight? Uh, branch or shoving that camera in their mouth and showing the teeth structure does it put it into a relic humanoid class and then hopefully being able to video getting blood samples fingerprints hair samples things like that then you're going to get into the conclusive part but aside from that you know i think you know especially here in north america with this killing bigfoot show and you know, Wes Germer last week on Sasquatch Chronicles podcast, he had me on as one of the um, contributors to the roundtable about killing Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I'm no kill because of the Kwakwakiwak beliefs that you're going to be cursed and family yeah, loved yeah. ones will die around you. But at the same turn, I'm a bushman. Anything comes after me aggressively, especially if I'm out there with my kids or my common-law wife, well, I don't care who or what it is. It becomes food, social, ceremonial real quick under the laws of Canada. I'm going to put as much lead or copper in that SOB and take them down so that then they hit the ground, they're staying on the ground. Mm. And if that should happen, yeah, I'll get some evidence brought out. But I'm not doing that. I'm not hunting the thing with a gun. I'm out there with a camera. I'm out there with a person or myself with a gun as 
safety because I think if you go to the bush without a gun, you're foolish, especially out here. But at the same turn, it's, you know, United States, you know, Washington State. There's no gun um, gun laws down there other than you can't have a machine gun. So in other words, there's no gun laws in the context. It's a free state. And I love it. You can go in and get a permit for conceal or or non-conceal and carry a pistol. You can get a pistol up to 50 caliber nowadays. A lot of them in 30 caliber, like a 357 Magnum. In Canada, I can only wish you could pack a pistol. I pack 12 gauges and high-powered 30 caliber rifles. But yeah, it's just a matter of time. Um, governments are starting to put in state level and provincial level legislation of no shooting these creatures. Mm. Well, if you're legislating laws not to shoot them, then that government is acknowledging that they exist. Mm. So that being said, even if they do have legislation that you can't shoot it because it's a relic humanoid, possibly, and if it is confirmed a relic humanoid, you can be charged for murder. BS, bullshit to that. Yeah, I can't see it. It was self-defense. Yeah. I'm going to argue with you when you're out in the bush. There ain't no witnesses or cameras out there like you guys got in London all over the place. Mm. Well, when when it suits. Does... um. So, with these rules coming out now where you can't shoot Sasquatches in certain states and all the rest of it, you know, because people go on and on about a cover-up, um, that doesn't really sound like a cover-up, does it? Oh, there's a huge cover-up. The reason why is because the marbled murrelet and the spotted owl, we in North America, the Pacific oh, Northwest, yeah. know how many millions of hectares of forest and other resources we couldn't extract because of the supposed endangered level of a species known as a marbled murrelet, a flying bird that lives in the ocean and nests in supposed ancient rainforest groves, and the spotted owl that only lives in in ancient rainforest. Well, them environmentalist corporations did a real good job of bullshitting the world. Because lo and behold, 25 years later, we find out that both creatures were quite content in second and third growth groves. So environmentalism is a business. And to me, you know, it's a matter of time that we're going to find it. I want to find it. The reason why? Because I live here in British Columbia. I support all industries. But I really think it's a travesty what I'm seeing as insofar as the logging industries going in right. They threw they, up until ten years ago or so they followed the forest practices code. Hmm. Well, since we've had a majority provincial government in the last twenty years, they've thrown that book aside, and now they're going right up to the riverbanks and harvesting our timber, second, third, and old growth. Hey, I support logging, but I don't support destroying salmon habitat and other habitat close to river systems, riparian zones like swamps, which baby salmon. I'm a commercial fisherman by trade. I'm a West Coast native Indian. Salmon is everything to us, whether it be social, economic, or cultural, or just everything. It's everything to us. And the logging industry has just gone into rape and pillage. And we've tried everything to stop them. And a bunch of dreadlock hippies smoking marijuana on the side of a logging road holding up their placards with ink derived from the petroleum industry, wood derived from the forest industry, 
pulp making the poster boards that they write their quotes on about protest doesn't work. Standing Rock is a great example of that. Mm. Complete waste of our time. And so you're not... Protest nowadays is obsolete. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're banging a drum and protesting, you're throwing your hands up in defeat saying, oh, we weren't smart enough. We didn't have a well-developed frontal lobe to be there in consultation with government, First Nations, and industry. And now... We're out here protesting. Oh, I'm a failure as a human. That's what they're proclaiming with their placards as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. So the only way we're going to protect Mother Earth, the environment, the salmon, is by all being unified of every different race, creed, color, and go uniting together with the First Nations leading the charge and saying we want these zones protected for studying of a probable relic humanoid or a probable primate. We don't know. That would be a, that would be a silver lining, wouldn't it? If we could find the Bigfoot and and save and save certain places all in one go. That's, well, uh, that's our only choice. We have no yeah. choice. We've tried everything else. Look yeah. at Greenpeace. Greenpeace, Sea Separate Society. What have what have we realized about them? David Suzuki. They're pathological liars for corporate greed. They're in their so posed environmental organizations and nothing but corporations. And it's all about generating donations for, you know, look at David Suzuki. I'm, you know, how many mansions that guy has, you know, the lifestyle he leads. Look at uh, Sea Shepherd Society. You know, they're at one time I was a supporter of them now, but now it's all about, you know, not a cause, a corporation. It's no longer about the cause of those com those groups. It's all about so it just comes back to money, doesn't it? Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Ten yeah. commandments. Know your ten commandments. Don't then try not to make mistakes. I'm a human. I make mistakes. I break commandments every month, you know. But we have to do what we can not to. And the number one is greed. Yeah. Well. That's uh, well. I suppose before you go, I should ask you if there's any other creatures that we should know about that could be possibly out there. You know, because I, I keep hearing I had Linda Godfrey on a couple of weeks ago, and she she was talking about these giant birds that are being seen and stuff like that. Um, have you got any other creatures that you know about? Sea youth, sea serpent. Hmm? It's that sea youth, the sea yeah. serpent. It's like, that. Seen it here from time to time around Vancouver Island. They call it Cabosaurus down by Cadbarrow Bay in Victoria. And what do you call it? Uh, my people talk about the sea youth. Uh, one of the inlets up in our traditional territories, it's seen from time to time there. Yeah, so invite me on again. I can talk about that. Maybe even talk about the lowly look, the ghosts. Um, but most of all, I like talking about Sasquatch Bigfoot. And for your listeners, you know, Hopefully you're going to post. And what is your website? Oh, I'll send, I'll send you all that. Yeah. yeah. And just give them the links to what I have, you know, with Humumu Adventures and Sasquatch Island and all that. More than welcome to call me. And, you know, if you're from England and you're coming to Vancouver Island, why you go to Victoria? It's just, what do you call it, sister city to London or something? I call it a colonial bunch of garbage down there. Yeah, Everyone <laughs> paying 80 bucks for a high tea and a scone. Come on now. Pay 80 bucks and go on a whale watch and go see some creatures. Never mind going to Victoria. 
But if you get to central or northern Vancouver Island, come see me. And I'm also based in Washington State. I live there part-time with my common-law wife. And, you know, I do Seattle Sasquatch tours and downtown, the museums and all that, share with you all the legends and stories. Vancouver as well, the totem poles that are in the city, the Museum of Anthropology with all the masks. And don't forget, Vancouver Island is the highest concentration of wood carvings of Sasquatch on Earth. From Victoria to the tip in Port Hardy, there's nothing but carvings of Sasquatch, native and non-native. And uh, them, uh, them totem poles fascinate me. I see, I see there's a picture you sent of one. It's, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'd to have one in my yard. I can carve you one. Carve you a small one, foot one foot high, 18 inches high. But does it, does it each level, does it mean something? Well, any, the base form is the power position on a totem pole because symbolically it carries the weight of every creature above. And that's why they put the Junahua there because the Junahua, the Sasquatch, is the most powerful crest that we have on a tier structure. It's the highest elevated one. And when you see in Vancouver the squatting one with outstretched arms and other places of outstretched arms, but that pole tells you, like if you had one in your house, it's showing that you know, in the old times you had title to the crest as well as in modern times for us, Kwakwakiwak, you had rights and title to the crest, which meant your family came from a house of wealth if you didn't have it as your first ancestor. And the outstretched arm signifies that your wealth and power can be felt all around the world. And so it has a very powerful context to it. And that's why you see so many Junohua masks and carvings in the art galleries and museums because the non-native people have known this since the time they came here. And if you're going to buy something, buy the Rolls Royce of something, the Rolex of something. And that's what the Junohua crest is all about. By having it, having possession of it, showing it, you're showing that you're, you know, you're high up, blue blood. Kind of like your guys is king and queen or queen or whatever you got going over yeah, there. Yeah, it's a queen, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, that, well, I just got to say thank you, and uh, yeah, I will have you on to speak about some of them other things that we spoke about today. So that'd be cool. Well, thank you very much. In the language of my people, called Kwakwala, the language of the Kwakwakiwak people, we like to say at the end, Halakilesla. Go in peace. Thank you very much.